Well, hey, good morning. Like Debbie said, we are starting a new series on Jesus Outside the Lines. This is based on a book written by Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville. We're going to be uh, having Scott with us in a couple of weeks. He's going to preach on this topic. And we gave this book away on Christmas Eve. And if you weren't here, we, we gave away one per household. And so there are some out at the, the welcome desk that after the service. We'd love for you to stop by and to grab some so we can all sort of be reading it together throughout the series. And so the idea of Jesus Outside the Lines is based upon what would it look like for us to follow Jesus in all the places Jesus goes, but we are tempted to stay away from in terms of relationships, right? So in our world, what often happens for us is we see the other, we see them, we see us and them, we see inside and out, we see our side and theirs, and we often are tempted to draw lines. And when we draw lines, what we unintentionally do is We put ourselves in places where we imagine that God loves us, so how could he possibly love them? And yet time and time again in the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus does not play by those rules. Jesus goes outside of the lines, across the lines, and loves those who others might think unlovable. And we all have people in our lives who we, at least on some level, act like they're unlovable. And so we want to take a journey over the next several weeks, all the way through the Lenten season, where we ask good questions about what would it look like for us to follow Jesus outside of the lines. And this morning, in particular, we want to ask, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why do we imagine that Jesus would have something unique in particular to say to this cultural moment. And we think that as we wrestle with what Jesus means for us, how Jesus matters to each and every one of our lives, then we might start to imagine how Jesus would then matter for others and matter in our conversations and matter in the ways that we sort of live in the world as Christ followers. Why does Jesus matter is the question we're asking this morning. So to get at that, we're going to look at a text in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. We're also going to read it together responsively up on the screen. So I'm going to read the parts that are not in bold, and then together in unison, we will all read out loud the parts that are in bold. Please join me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who have lived under the Jewish sacrificial code. And the book of Hebrews is is his attempt to help them understand why that code, that religious system has now changed because of Jesus. And so much like us, they are hearing this as people who who are encountering a world and who are trying to wrestle with and understand what does it mean for Jesus to matter in light of what's going on in our world today. And he says they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If you go back one chapter 
in Hebrews 11, he lists a whole bunch of, of God followers throughout history who have run faithful races, who have remained faithful to God throughout the course of their life, and he lists a lot of the challenges that they've had. So we know there are a lot of challenges in our world today which cause divisions and lines. We know it happens on a national scale and an international scale, and we know that it happens locally in our relationships, in our workplaces, and even our local schools, we see the effects of the divisiveness that's happening in our world. And so why do we imagine that Jesus would matter? There's nothing under the sun which is new. The challenging times we are faced might be a little different, but challenging times have always come. And throughout history, during challenging times, the church has always, always, always returned to Jesus. And therefore, for us to consider what it would look like to live faithful lives in our world today, we should return to Jesus and understand why Jesus matters for us today. The first thing I want you to see the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus matters because sin clings so closely. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So he imagines that we are in some kind of a running race, and yet something continues to try to trap us, to trick us, to trip us, to wrap us up, to weigh us down, that we want to be faithful, and yet there's something which weighs heavy on us, and he calls that thing sin. Now, if you're like me, And some of you will be, some of you won't, it's fine. If you're like me, when you hear the word sin, it doesn't always sit well with you. I think of images of street preachers with signs condemning me for sins, even though they don't know me. I think of fiery pastors screaming at me in my youth about being a sinner. The word sin does not conjure up good images for me. Even for us, the Ten Commandments, which seem to be the epitome of, here's a list of rules, do not violate them or you'll make God mad. Even the Ten Commandments are not about a list of rules to break or keep. Instead, they were ways in which God gave his people to learn to live in right relationship with him and then right relationship with each other. Right? Sin is not about an arbitrary list of rules that we might break and make God mad. Sin is relational dysfunction. Sin is a relational problem all the way through. The word for sin in the Greek in this text in Hebrews is often translated as an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Right? So you're, you're, you're shooting a bow and arrow, you're aiming at the target, It doesn't hit the bullseye. It misses, it misses, it misses. It's off, right? It doesn't do what it's intended to do. And that's a perfectly accurate way of translating. But another way of translating sin in this context is to exclude oneself. To exclude oneself. To sin is to take oneself out of right relationship or out of a social context and to isolate or exclude yourself. We know deep down in our guts that sin is a relational issue, right? We experience the effects of it all the time. When we find ourselves scrolling 
through Facebook, scrolling through Twitter, watching the news, listening to the news, talking to others about what's going on in our world today, we don't just hear, that's a bad idea. We think that's a bad person. Right? Right? They disagree with us. We don't like what they've said. They're so wrong. And the sin starts to mean that it's not just us against that idea. It's us against them. Sin haunts our relationships. Where in your life is sin haunting relationships? You think about the way you relate to your parents, the way you relate to your kids, the way you relate to coworkers and roommates and classmates. How is sin entangling or threatening to entangle and weigh heavy and disrupt, right? Sin clings so closely and it entangles us and it malforms us. And then we walk out into the world, into classrooms, into workplaces, into families, entangled in sin, entangled in fear, entangled in hatred, entangled in selfishness, entangled in isolation, entangled in pride, entangled in lust. Some of us even find ourselves entangled by things that were meant for our good. We can be entangled by pursuits of comfort and security. We spent four weeks in January looking at how wealth and consumption can entangle us. Our pursuits of the perfect family and the best life for our kids can entangle us. Pursuing the perfect career at all cost can weigh us down. And what we find is we're not just putting ourselves up against a set of rules and breaking them. We find ourselves breaking relationships, hurting people, all in the name of self-preservation, selfishness, and the pursuit of things which we think we need, but in the end cling to us and entangle us. And the author of Hebrews imagines that there's only one solution for this relational problem, for this sin that clings so closely. And he says it's to fix our eyes on Jesus, that Jesus is the only solution to the malformation. Author James K.A. Smith, in his book, Awaiting the King, talks about the Godfather problem. I hope this analogy is not dated, but The Godfather is a series of movies about a mob family, about a crime family with a mob boss. And, and, and what you see, though, is that they are doing the things that mob families do, and yet they also go to church. They go to confession. They take communion. They have their babies baptized. How is it, he asks, that one family could spend all of their time out in the world doing the things that mobsters do, right? Eliminating enemies, living with vengeance and violence and hatred, and then walk into church on a regular basis and say the historic confessions of the church, confess to believe in Jesus, take communion, sing and pray, hear the word preached. How is that possible and I don't think any of us are mobsters. If you are, I apologize. <laughs> and yet what we find is that we can come in week after week, sing and pray and listen 
and take communion and are our lives transformed? What I want you to see is Jesus matters because Christianity without Christ is powerless. It's powerless. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the reason the Godfather problem exists is because Christianity, going to church, singing, praying, taking communion, these things in and of themselves do not form us into the way of Jesus. It is only out of a relationship with Jesus that we are formed into a relationship with Jesus, into the way of Jesus. Christianity without a relationship with Jesus lacks transformation and it lacks power. Our lives are shaped and changed and transformed by and out of relationships. We know this is true instinctively, right? Because when we we get good news, what do we do? We call someone, we tell someone, hey, dad, I got a job. Mom, it's a girl. I'm getting married. In the same way, when we get bad news, we want to share it with someone because we want someone to carry the burden with us, right? We live and breathe and operate out of relationships. I was once in a room of, uh, I'll call them very Presbyterian people. You got, I mean, we might be Presbyterian, but we're not like all very Presbyterian. I was in a room of very Presbyterian people, like a thousand of them. And, and the presenter was asking questions to try to get people to identify with what, what, are the most, what are the most transformative and meaningful spiritual experiences of your life? And so he asked lots of questions. He made some statements and he helped them for several minutes process what has been the most meaningful part of your spiritual journey. When he got him to the right place, he said, now stand up if what you thought of was a book. No one stood up. Stand up if what you thought of was a person. Everyone in the room stood up. Right? We know for some reason that even the most academically, mentally geared people in the world, Presbyterians, know deep down that we live not out of books, We live out of relationships, and relationships transform us. If sin is a relational problem, it needs a relational solution, right? It needs a relationship with Jesus. Part of the reason why the practices of Christianity will be meaningless without Christ is because when you pray and when you sing and when you take communion and when we hear the word, we are rehearsing and practicing our relationship with Jesus. And therefore, when you don't have a relationship with Jesus, those things might end up being meaningful in some way, but you can't practice and rehearse something that you don't have. And therefore, they are not transformative in your life, and we don't live meaningful, transformative, powerful lives changed by Christ. And then collectively as a church, We can't live a powerful and meaningful story, and our story will be irrelevant to the world in which we live. So the third thing I want you to see is if the church doesn't matter, sorry, if Jesus doesn't matter to the church, the church won't matter to the world. 
Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured. So in all the trials of life, if we do not focus on Jesus, if Jesus isn't what we're moving towards and with, then we will have nothing meaningful to move forward with. Without Jesus, we cannot shed the sin that clings. We have no power for a transformed life, and we will be irrelevant to the world in which we live. Without Jesus, we will have nothing meaningful to invite people into. It is tempting in the world in which we live to jettison Jesus. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but churches are doing it every single day. To jettison Jesus for the sake of being relevant, to jettison Jesus for the sake of being a little more palatable, because Jesus can be messy. He can be challenging. He can invite us to do things which are hard. And so we can say, oh, we're so warm and welcoming and nice and friendly. That's who we are. Or, oh, no, we're the people who do all kinds of good in the world. We do all kinds of justice. We stand up for all these issues. We give all this money. Oh, look at our amazing building that we're making even better. We, we are such good people. We live good lives. People should want to be like us. God has blessed us richly, right? We can think all these things, all these things can be good and true. I'm not bashing any of those things, but what I'm telling you is that without Jesus, they will ultimately be meaningful in the world, meaningless in the world. They will be meaningless. Without Jesus, we have nothing meaningful to invite people into. We can be as welcoming and nice and loving as anyone, and yet without the transforming power of Jesus, we will be boring. We can be amazingly moral people who do good works, and yet without the transformation of Jesus, we will be judgmental. We can give away all kinds of money to causes around the world. We can march. We can stand up for people. We should do those things. And yet without the transformation of Jesus, we will just become burnt out and make no difference. We can have an amazing building And yet if we don't have Jesus, we're inviting people into nothing. We can have the most entertaining children, children's ministry and youth programs, and yet we can send students right back out the door to be transformed, not by Jesus, but by the forces at work in the world around them. Without Jesus, we have nothing powerful and meaningful to invite people into. We are not compelling unless Jesus is transforming our lives individually and our life together. If Jesus doesn't matter to us, our faith won't matter in the world. Jesus is our hope and our future. He is the pioneer and the author and the beginner. He is the perfecter, the finisher, the fulfillment, the completion. Notice Notice that the, uh, that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say Jesus is the pen and the paper. It would be so much easier if he was, right? If Jesus were just these religious tools at our disposal to make our lives what we want them to be. But he doesn't say that. He says that Jesus is the author, the pioneer, 
the perfecter. He desires a relationship with you, a relationship with you where the sin doesn't cling and where he has defeated the power of sin and death and hell. It has no power over you. You can walk with Jesus and finish the race and walk it with perseverance because your eyes are fixed on him and he is the one who has started your faith and he is bringing it to completion himself. What would it look like for us to live in the world as if sin had no claim on us? What would it look like for you? Where in your life do you need to let go of the sin that so easily entangles? Where is it tripping you up? Where is it causing you to live with others out of brokenness and not out of the love of Jesus? What sin in your life do you need to let go of? The second question is, what would it look like for you to live as if Jesus the relationship you have with Jesus was the source of every other relationship that you had, that you lived out of having a close, ongoing relationship with Jesus. We've talked about how relationships transform us and change us. The people we are in relationship with change the way we live. I thought about this in terms of, of my brother. So I've told many of you, some of you don't know, I have a twin brother, an identical twin, and uh, there he is. He came up uh, for Thanksgiving, he and his family, and we ran a race at Lake Harriet, and I beat him. That's why I'm holding up the one. Um, and we're, we're the only siblings, just the two of us, and uh, we did everything together. We played football and baseball together. We had all the same schedules, the same classes, the same youth activities. Um, and then when we turned 16, we both drove to school separately every single day without fail, even though we had the same schedule just spoken like someone who's never paid for gas, right? Like, that's exactly what that was. Uh, but the thing was, I had a shadow. <laughs> I, I had a twin brother who was always there. I was never alone in social situations. We were always around each other. And I can look back on that fondly and favorably, but as a teenager, I didn't love having a built-in tattletale. <laughs> right? Someone who could easily run to mom and dad and say anything that I did or said that I shouldn't have. And so I found myself over time making decisions based on, well, my brother's there, so he'll, he'll tell if he, if, if, he, if he sees me do something I shouldn't. And so I would make decisions that way, right? Now, what I've learned was this was not about guilt. This was not about worry of getting in trouble. This was about having a relational presence in my life that reminded me of who I was. And I would make decisions based on that. Now, it's a simple analogy. What I want you to see is when you have a relationship with Jesus and Jesus is transforming your life, then you operate in the world. You make decisions. You treat others out of that relationship. It is an ever-present reality, this desiring for you to run the race with perseverance. Heard an amazing story this past week um, of, of a CPC member, a Christ Pres member, was flying on the airplane back from Boston to Minneapolis and, uh, and was sitting by a man, and she was sitting there reading in her seat the Jesus Outside the Lines book. And the man beside her started to ask her about it, and they struck up a conversation, and she told the man beside her about Jesus and about the book and about what's going on at CPC. It turns out he was a, a sports radio host flying in for the Super Bowl from Boston. Wednesday night, he shows up at CPC to a men's Bible study just because this woman had shared with him about CPC and had invited him. Now, I think that's an amazing story, right? Because what it shows is Jesus mattered to her 
and she crossed the line. Right? Jesus mattered, and she crossed the line. And it's not until Jesus matters to us that we can start to imagine how Jesus might matter to others. It's not until Jesus matters to us that we can start imagining how Jesus might matter to others in our world and to the divisive issues that our world faces. And so for us as a church, our hope is that each and every one of you know the transforming love and power of a relationship with Jesus so that you may be formed to walk into the world and to show others the love that you have, that Jesus would matter to them. And it's not until we know the transformation of Jesus in our own lives that we can faithfully walk outside the lines and across the lines and run the race with perseverance. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, We thank you for who you are and for how you love us, for the ways in which you have come to us when our sin is clinging so close, when it so easily entangles, and you have loved us, loved us all the way through death and resurrection, that we may experience new life, that we may experience abundance in you. So I pray for each and every one of my friends here in this room that they would know what it means to have a relationship with you that they would know what it looks like to practice it and rehearse it and to live it out in the world, that for all the stuff that's weighing heavy on us, that we would give those things over to you. As we approach your table, may we shed the sin that clings. May we confess honestly the brokenness in us that we need you oh so much. And let us come with open hands and open hearts, trusting that you are greater than anything else there is to offer. We love you and praise you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Amen.